Romans chapter 5 is where we've gotten to, which begins with a therefore, and Paul has been building his case here. Again, if you've been with us, he's talked about how he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, the salvation, that in it the righteousness of God is revealed, and he has then gone into how everyone in the world is in need of this righteousness from God, that we're all under sin, nobody's escaping the judgment of God, and he brought us to that kind of climactic conclusion that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly, and then walked into, again, the reality that this righteousness from God can only come through faith and has always come through faith, even going all the way back to Abraham and David in the Old Testament. So having kind of established this, he is going to set it up on a couple other levels, but First, he wants to introduce some new considerations of this righteousness and basically the blessed results of our justification by faith. What, what comes of it? So, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, that's in the past, we've been declared righteous. Now, these blessings are recorded. He'll, he'll mention three right off the bat. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All of these blessings recorded are because we've been justified by faith, and they come, notice he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing, of course, of that is we know if it's not related to our works and it's related to his works, then those blessings don't change because God the Father is going to be eternally satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ. So the blessings that come to us through the work of Jesus Christ remain steady, objective blessings. So he mentions three, peace with God, access to God and grace, and the hope of glory. And all three of these things, they have both an objective side and a subjective side. Objective being they are true, no matter what our personal experience or thought of those things may be. The sun is hot. I could be sitting here cold. That could be my personal experience. It could be nighttime. I can think that that's not true. It is true. It is an objective truth that the sun is hot. However I feel about it in my personal experience at any moment, that is true. The subjective side of things is our personal understanding or experience of those things. And there's some arguments here as, as to how people look at this, but the reality is all of our subjective experience comes out of objective truth. So in all of these things, there's, there's two sides. One of them is the truth of them that God has established, which remains and is unchanged. And the other side of it is our growth in the reality of that thing that God has worked on our behalf through Jesus Christ that remains steady toward us. So I want to take a little bit and just look at these things. Uh, just kind of walk with them one by one. The first being, again, is verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody said peace with God, of course, is the objective side. The peace of God is the subjective side. Paul had previously shown our relation to God and peace, which was negative. In three seventeen and 18, he said, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Outside of the work of Christ, we have no peace with God. Paul knew that well personally. <laughs> he literally had Jesus say to him, how long are you going to kick against the goads, Paul? He was wrestling for quite a while. He did not have peace with God. He came into a place through Jesus Christ where he understood that peace of God. And because of his work, we are no longer now in rebellion against God. We are no longer, he's going to say, enemies of God. We are now what Paul says of these Romans in 1-7, which is we're beloved of God and called to be saints. 
And that peace of God is settled toward us. There's, there's no change in it. And the reality is, how could there be? How, how could God ever be upset in his own work of salvation on our behalf? That's never going to change. How could God the Father ever be less than fully satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ, his Son, for us? So the fact that we're justified settles on God's side this reality that you and I, as sons and daughters, justified in him, have peace with God. The prodigal son in that parable, I think, is a good example of this. No matter what he was doing personally, he had peace with his father. The father, on his end, was at peace with his son. There was going to be no war there. We know what it is on a human level to have a relationship with somebody and to not have peace with that person. But the minute he came home, what he found is that he had peace with his father. He questioned that. He wondered what it would be like when he came home. He thought he could maybe show up and say, I'll just be a servant in the house. But there was a settled reality there in the father's heart, the type of reality that, of course, which makes the parable so beautiful, only Jesus could tell us. This is what the father's heart is really like. And this peace with God is an understated theme through the book of Romans. Paul will talk about it in 8.6. He'll talk about it in 10.15. He'll talk about it in 14.17, in 14.19, in 15.13, in 15.33, in 16.20. Ending the book, he'll say, this is an actually interesting combination, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. You, you have the one who's going to crush Satan, settled peace with him. That's good news. And on his end, there is no change to that. Now, that said, our peace, the peace of God, the subjective side, what I am experiencing as an individual person from day to day, because I have peace with God that's never changing, I can have a personal experience of that peace. Because the source is settled and always there, I can have a subjective part of that. There's always more, but we can all have our portion of it, and there's personal promises of that through the Scripture. John 14, 27, Jesus, Jesus would say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Of course, Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. These are promises of peace that the world knows nothing about, not as the world gives, Jesus says. That surpasses understanding. A supernatural gift to be experienced. Uh, there's a pastor named Harold St. John. He's in heaven now. But he was known for his godly character. He's an English guy. And there's a story about him traveling somewhere, sitting in a hotel, and a lady comes up to him and she says, would you mind... Uh, I notice you're English. I'm English as well. Would you mind if I actually asked you a question based on our kind of common identity here? He said, sure, go ahead. And she just said, I've been watching you for two days, and I just need to know. You, you have a piece about you I cannot understand. Where does that come from? Just watching him, just seeing his life, a simple stranger could notice this person has something I don't possess, which of course led to a conversation about the Lord. And you and I, in, in our reality, in our day-to-day -day life, can have a portion of this. The subjective side will have certain conditions to it. God, God can't pass his peace, that experience of it, along certain lines. Certainly can't pass that to us in sinful ways. Certainly, it can only be known and experienced in him. It's not going to be found in yourself. The more you look at yourself, you are not going to find a subjective experience of God's peace. The more you look at the world, the more you look at your own works. If you want to have 
a certain pride in yourself, if you're looking for that peace in material goods, certainly in untruths, false gospel, unrepentance. There's, you're not going to have peace in those places. God can't pass that along those lines. But there are true conditions. Isaiah 48, 18 says, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like waves of the sea. God says, on my end, I was ready to pour it out. It was there. You, you are lacking your subjective experience of this because you're searching in the wrong places. You didn't heed my commandments. I can't pass peace along the lines of Baal and Astrid. Not peace with God. A.W. Tozer in his book, Born After Midnight, would say this, the world talks of peace, and by peace it means the absence of war. What it overlooks is that there's another meaning of the word, namely tranquility of heart. And without that kind of peace, the peace of the world will continue to be but an unattainable dream. True peace is a gift of God, and today it is found in the minds of innocent children and in the hearts of trustful Christians. Peace I leave with you, said our Lord at the close of his earthly ministry. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It is time that we Christians awake to the fact that the world cannot help us in anything that matters. Not the educators, nor the legislators, nor the scientists can bring us tranquility of heart. And without tranquility, whatever else they give us is useless at last. For more than half a lifetime, I have listened to their promises, and they have so far failed to make good on one of them. To turn to God is now the only reasonable thing to do. We have no second choice. And our subjective experience is going to be very simply related to our obedience and our trust in what God says when he says, we have peace with him. I can have perfect peace in this life because I have a perfect Christ. And if I look at him, and I look to him, and I rest on him, my experience of this is going to be growing constantly, coming in all different types of ways. Ephesians 2.14 says, he himself is our peace. Again, we just take the disciples. They walked around with Jesus, and there was plenty of times they had no peace. But they learned that Jesus could take care of everything. They walked into a synagogue. There's a demon-possessed person. That would remove all of our peace, I'm sure. Jesus takes care of it, goes to Peter's house. His mother-in-law has a fever. You know, if you invite Jesus over and your mother or mother-in-law gets a fever, that's a bad scene, too. That's probably not a lot of peace in that house. Jesus takes care of it. There's a knock on the door. Everybody in the city that's sick shows up, generally not the people you want at your front door. Jesus takes care of it. Right? We get, get into a boat, storm, Jesus takes care of it. Legion, Jesus takes care of it. They learn to trust Jesus. All of a sudden, their peace was not in the circumstance, but in the person. If this guy's with us, we're all right. And they learn to have a subjective experience of that peace because we're cool with him. Everything is okay. Look, he's all right. I'm all right. And a lot of times when we say that we have peace with God, it isn't as rich as it should be because our subjective experience doesn't match up. But the problem is our subjective experience is facing the wrong direction. And that's why we're not finding what is there and what the Lord would love to extend to us. We can have real peace in this life because of what we already have, because of the work of Jesus Christ. You have that peace. You have peace with God. Do you know that? Tonight, you have it. It's the gift of our Savior. You can grow in your personal experience of it, but whether you feel it tonight or not, you have it. It is real. It is objective. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ. 
And again, these, these simple things, like I could say those words that we have peace with God, and they, they're Christianese talk, and they can be something we hear, we're familiar with, and just kind of roll off our back. Because the, the word, we make it conform to our own experience when we're supposed to take what the word of God says and allow our experience to come up to the word. I don't pull what this says down to me and say, well, the peace of God must be this low thing because this is all I know of it. No, I, I look at what God says, peace like a river. Do I have that? Because my experience needs to go up there. I don't, I don't pull the richness of that down here to what I just possess right now or say that doesn't exist because what he says is real. And what I might know of it is the thing that changes. And if I hope in what he says as the real thing, that's going to cause me to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and Jesus says he'll fill that person. That's his promise. And we do harm to ourselves when the rich spiritual truths and words we have in the Scripture are used in, in low, shallow, poor ways, and we harm spiritual life and spiritual living in the process. God promises an incredible thing. I have peace with God. A peace that is costly, not cheap. It costs the blood of God for me to have this peace. Works that only he could accomplish. And it is declared because I've been justified by faith through Jesus Christ that I have peace with God and that will never change. And I should ask for my portion of that. He took the cup of wrath so that I could take a cup that has peace with God in it and say, let me have my portion. Let me drink from that and receive from that. Second, he says, we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, the the objective side now is that we stand on the ground of access to God and grace. Grace has made, uh, it's the condition now that we stand in. The, uh, there was a military idea to that word. There was uh, certainly a context of we're standing in a peaceful place, though, here. The reality is this is a, this is a ground that I now live in, that there is grace there. Again, if we take this in a practical sense, to the prodigal son again. The prodigal son had access to his father's house, whether he thought it or not. That access was there. And when he came, grace was there. Now, he didn't believe that, it seems, for quite a while. But it says he finally came to his senses. And the objective reality of those things, the access and the grace that he stood in, whether he experienced it or not, was there for them. Certainly, this would be big for the Jew, uh, and really the Gentile as well, because the Jew certainly would understand the Holy of Holies, God's presence in this place that I cannot access. This veil is blocking me because he's holy and I'm unholy. And even, even the Gentile religions, their gods, they would be separated in some way. They would be high up on some mountain. They would be far away. There would be some inner sanctum, and you would have to do these things to get their favor or come near to them. There was, there was always a sense that, okay, God is, is somewhere that is hard for me to access. Uh, and, and some of these other gods, it was incredibly difficult, certainly, to access them. So for the Jew or the Gentile to now say that here, here is another condition that you live in. As a son or daughter of God, you live in the condition of open access and grace. And the two have to go together. But God is telling them this certainly because he wants them to draw near to him. God doesn't give us any truths that enable us to live life without him. Just in case you wonder that. 
He's not trying to get you to a certain level where you understand things, and then he's like, okay, go ahead. See you, see you again one day. It's the exact opposite. The more we actually understand the spiritual reality of the truths in the Scripture, the more connected to him we are. The more we live in daily conscious awareness of him, the more I am needy of him, the more I approach him. And this access that he gives was an objective reality that had to be enjoyed, notice, by faith again. Because if I look at my actions, those would tell me I should not have access nor grace. But if I, again, am looking at Christ, these things all come through our Lord Jesus Christ, and I have faith in what he's offered me, I have faith now in the place I stand, which is an open door and grace because he knows the person coming through the open door is not a perfect person, nor a complete person yet. My father was always good about allowing us to have access. We never had to be afraid that we couldn't come near him. I, I want the same thing with my kids. If I'm down here talking to somebody after a service, they need to be able to run up and give me a hug, and they can disturb our conversation for a second and then move on, right? But we don't want them to feel like they can't have access to us. There's something in between us and him. And our Heavenly Father, having accomplished what he did through his Son on the cross, wants us to have a sense of access and grace. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I don't need something else to get access. That's one of the mistakes we make. If I get enough knowledge, then I'll have more access. I don't come into more grace by additional uh, acceptance or understanding. I'm not going to come into a place of more access to God. Like he's going to want to be with me a little bit more. Right now, we're just kind of friends. If I, get, if I do a couple other things, he might invite me to sleep over for the night or something like that. Right? Like, otherwise, we're still just kind of acquaintances. That's not how it works. What Christ has done has purchased equal access for us. He's, he has no, no favorites. He's not a respecter of persons. He's, he's not making access easier for some people and harder for other people. He's not giving some folks, some sons and daughters, more grace and others less grace. This access and grace wherein we stand is objectively true for all of us. My actions didn't get me in. And I think sometimes as believers we can feel like, okay, I, you know, I wasn't saved by my works, but now that I'm in, if I'm going to have access, my actions now get me in. Again, that's not what it is. They have meaning on the subjective side. But on the objective side, they don't grant me more access to God or more grace that he would extend toward me. He's pleased when I come for grace. He already knows that when I come, I'm going to need him. Brother Lawrence said, God, if you don't help me, all I'll ever do is sin. And he said, when I mess up, that's what I say, and I just come to him. He already knows. There's no sense covering it up. It was sincerity of heart that the Lord's looking for. Blood and water are there for us. Forgiveness and cleansing God has made the way, he knows who we are, for sinful sons and daughters to access him because he cleanses us in his grace. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I can only approach him because he has made that way open, and he cleanses me in the process. He didn't just come to die and save us from our sin. He came to save us from our sin so we could once again be what he made us to be and do what he made us to do, which is glorify him 
by enjoying him forever, by pleasing him, by knowing him. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You and I are created to know him and be in a relationship like nothing else in creation. He gave you the spiritual organs to have a relationship with him, the capacity that nothing else in creation has. Sin got in the way. Jesus Christ has purchased access and grace so that we can step back into relationship with him. That's why he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's a promise. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Because he doesn't need to know the rest of your story. Because <laughs> this is an objective truth for everyone. The subjective side of that, the personal side, the side that's our experience, my experience of access into God's presence, and my experience of his grace in my life, it moves on certain principles. It's, it's God's known manifested presence in my life that he reveals himself in a way that is unique in every individual life. The life of God in the soul of man, it's been called, it's a mystery. But he reveals himself to everyone, and that can change how he's here, but how manifest he is is different and unique. We all know this. There, there could be millions of people in an area, and God manifesting himself to individual ones on different levels. We, we all know every Sunday all over the world, people go in and out of buildings to meet with God, but we all know they don't all meet with him the same. The access is there for those that are his sons and daughters. But the experience is different. Some of that is related to his will, but others is related to conditions. In John 14, Jesus would say, he that has my sayings and keeps them, me and my father, we're going to make our home with that person. I will manifest myself to him, that we will come to that person and we will love them and make our home with them. That's the subjective side of this. He says, if we seek him, we'll find him. If we seek him with all our heart. The, the experience will be different. Sometimes it's more unique than others. That's not up to me. The experience is up to him. But he hasn't changed. He, I have to seek him in his word. I'm not going to experience him if I'm seeking him somewhere that he won't be found. If I'm seeking him, again, in sin or for the wrong motives or for uh, things that are really self-serving, if I'm seeking him for himself, though, he'll be found. He hasn't, he hasn't changed his modem or the way he works because we live in a modern world that's super busy. People will just experience less of him because they're too busy. <laughs> change your life. You can find him. Have enough time to read and pray. You can find him. Have enough time to fellowship. You're here tonight. He'll speak to you. If your heart is open to what he would say, because the access never changes, the grace is there when you know you're a sinner and you want access to wash you and to cleanse you. Do I want to share in life with him? Right? How do you build any other friendship? You have mutual interests. If you're just interested in yourself and your own life, you won't experience that much of him. But if I allow my life to share in his interests, like, do I think about God's reputation? Do I think about God's glory? Do I think about God's plans for my day? Do I think about what God thinks of my wife or my children? Do I think about what God thinks of my coworkers? You would do this with any other friend. If you just made all the plans all the time and didn't consult them on anything, your friendship won't last long. God's a person to be known. 
and he wants to be involved in your life. He's given us access. Do I allow that to work in my life? Do I approach him in that way? That's, that's going to be part of what determines my personal subjective experience of the promise access that I have and the grace that he gives. There, there are certain things that will determine the way we know that. And sometimes it could seem easier for, for others. Sometimes it feels like, you know what, maybe God's playing favorites or something. Usually, again, that's just because of invitation. Like Jesus was always over Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. Seems like they're his favorites. No, here's the deal. They just always invited him over. You can have as much of God as you want. They weren't favorites. They just kept inviting him. Equal access. The reality is, even if it's hard for you to sit down and read your Bible, just tell God that. He already knows. He's not shocked. You feel like, Lord, this this is hard for me to even think of you during the day to bring you into this. I, I want those things. Great. So does he. And he's made a way. Just ask him for help. Sometimes people tell testimonies and they have these crazy stories and it seems like one crazy thing happens to them and then supernaturally their lives were changed forever. And it was like easy then on. That's not how things go. It doesn't matter where you're saved or what happens. Your relationship with God has to be the same. Everybody has to do the same things. We all have to read his word. We all have to pray. We all have to acknowledge him in our lives. We all have to praise him. We all have to serve We all have to do the same things. The minute you're saved, the minute you're granted access in the work of Jesus Christ, the minute God has brought you into his kingdom, you're his son and daughter, he's put his spirit in you, you're born again. Now you you want a subjective experience of that access? We We have to do it in the same ways. Nothing has changed, not from the way the apostles did it to the way that we do it. And that is there for all of us. It's there for all of us. God didn't save us to have us live lives that are distant from him. He doesn't want distant sons and daughters. He's not giving people a get-out-of-hell-free card and saying, see me when you kick the bucket. That's not what he wants. He wants our lives to be with him all the way through eternity. Even if you're here and you sinned, I think sometimes people think this, particularly if you're like that prodigal son who had access and left it, who had grace but didn't think he deserved it. Sometimes we can feel like if you've grown up in the church, you sin, maybe you've sinned extendedly, And you're like, yeah, but I knew better. Did the work of Christ grant you access? Or did your own works grant you access? Jesus Christ offers you access. Just turn back. Like the prodigal son. Come to your senses. This is there for you. He will be waiting for you. Access and grace. God waits to be wanted. Does he wait in vain in our lives? This access is no cheap access. These are not cheap spiritual words. It took the blood of God's Son for a sinner like me to have open access and grace to stand in so that I can come to him So that when I try to pray, when I read my Bible in the morning, when I come to a church service, when I seek to worship him, I can believe all of those things are accepted. And none of that is actually hard for me. It was hard for him. It's only hard for me when I have a cold, hard heart and overcome my own sinful nature. It was hard for him to purchase that access and grace. It's not actually hard for me to step into it. It is there, no matter what I think of it, 
no matter what my experience is of it. It is there for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And last, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That objective reality is that we will one day step into the glory of God. I don't know if it was D.L. Moody or who said it first, but somebody basically put it like this, and I always found this encouraging. If you are saved, if you're born again, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. Life's not perfect here, certainly. But if this is as close to hell as I'll ever get, that's pretty good. If you're not saved, this is as close to heaven as you ever get. That's a little scary. But if you're saved, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. You have the hope of glory that you can rejoice in. This hope is in the sure work of Christ. We can take this for granted, but many in the world, they have no hope. No hope of glory in this life. They want things and they know they can never have those things. So much out there, social media, TV, looking at stars and the way people live certain lives, they just know I'm never going to have that type of life. And there's some people who maybe have enough talent or ability to take a shot at it. And most of those fall short. We don't hear those how many stories of hopes have been crashed. Just not that long ago, CEO or one of the leading CEO people in Bed Bath & Beyond, right, jumps off a building and kills himself. How can a person with so much success or money do that? Hopes all over in this world are dashed. And some people hope, you know, they just, they know they're not going to shoot for the big hopes, so they just kind of go for the middling thing. I just want to be, you know, the best guy on my bowling team or the guy who tears up the rec league in the 40 and over or, you know, the, I just want to be the, the, the best person at work or just move up the next step of the ladder here. You know, we have, some people live for, for pretty tiny glory, too. And if you touch that glory, man, they will fight you for it. How dare you say my post was not important in your life? Dislike that. The, the reality is there's shooting for a lot of hopes, most of which are worthless, and all of which will come to nothing. There is a sure hope that we have, and that is that we are going to step into God's glory. Jesus says in John 17, 22, the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Colossians 3, 4 when Christ, who is our life, appears, again, all tied to Christ, then you also will appear with him in glory. We're not only going to see Christ's glory. That's, that's what we picture sometimes. We are going to share and step into it. God saved his church. He washes her by the water of his word to present to himself a glorious church or bride without spot or wrinkle. No blemish, holy. God wants us to share in it. In Romans 8, he's going to say, if we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is an objective reality. I am going to share in the glory of God. I'm going to reflect it, experience it step into it, whether I feel like it or not, because there's plenty of days we wake up and we do not feel glorious. Sometimes we feel like saints, sometimes we feel like sinners, but it doesn't matter. This is my reality because of the work of Jesus Christ. The subjective reality of that can sometimes seem a bit harder for us. You know, the three Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus transfigured. The wider group of disciples got to see him resurrected. If I saw resurrected Jesus, maybe it'd be easier. Paul got a vision of Jesus Christ. He had a vision of the heavens. Sometimes it seems like to have a, an understanding, a, a spiritual, subjective experience of the glory of God, I got I to gotta have something like that. Right? You gotta, God, you got to send me an angel in my room or something like that. The subjective experience here is simply the amount of joy and rejoicing 
that we have in these eternal promises. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives these things the eternal weight they're supposed to have. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, We know this first half, but the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And usually we stop right there. Talk about heaven. Heaven has so many good things for you. Don't even think about it. It's not what the scripture says. It says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. No one can deny that in the rich Christian history that these believers were having because they were persecuted. They were going to be put to death. Paul himself was going to be put to death, martyred. These Jews who once worshipped in this glorious kind of pomp and circumstance in the temple were hiding out in caves and catacombs, talking about the glory of God, rejoicing to have their goods spoiled, knowing that they had better and enduring substance in heaven. How, how can those things be real, not only to these individuals, but for martyrs, missionaries, and Christian people all through history? for moms and homes, for the regular guy who's working. How, how can we have our own experience of these things? Well, the Holy Spirit takes the promises of eternal things and he gives them their proper weight in our heart and life so that I don't have to have seen Jesus risen to have that same rejoicing or hope because he makes it just as real as if I had. So the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God can work in our hearts and lives and give these things the weight they're supposed to have. And one day I'm going to have it. The prodigal son, again, in his personal experience, tried to take his inheritance early and wasted it. He never would have thought that when he went home, he would get the best robe and a ring and sandals and the fatted calf. He didn't think he had much glory. Still sat ahead of him. Didn't think there was much to hope in. These things are not just for the really difficult things in life. The peace that we have with God, the access that we have in his grace, the hope that we have of God's glory they're for the big things. They're for martyrs and missionaries. They're for when we lose a loved one or we have a terminal illness. They're, they're for maybe the, the couple times in our life where there's a really difficult scenario. But they're also supposed to weigh in everyday normal life. They're supposed to mean something there. They're supposed to mean something to us individually. They don't just happen to us collectively. I think we think a lot, you know, well, in heaven, we'll all kind of stand on the same golden street. You know, we'll all be the same height. It might still be different colors, but we all have the same kind of white robe and golden sash. And we end with these kind of like sterile images. We're all going to have a dwelling place, but it's going to kind of be like a motel. The room's going to be the same and all of them. Maybe somebody's bathroom's on one side and mine's on the other, right? We don't, we don't really talk out loud about this, but we have these kind of thoughts that don't actually stir up much hope. They're not very biblical. There's no such thing as cheap glory. That Jesus Christ did not die to purchase us something sterile, and synthetic. Uh, I love the way Adolf Safier, he's a, a Messianic Jew in his book, The Hidden Life, he says this, as one human countenance differs from another, as the glory of one star differs from that of another, so there is a great variety and manifold peculiarity among the children of God. Each has a name known only to the Lord and himself. And the good shepherd, who knows each sheep by name, is preparing for each a place. All are children and heirs. All are united in the Father's house. But each finds, as he was led personally during the time of his earthly pilgrimage, so the end of the way 
is also personally adapted to him. Thus, all our earthly experiences have an eternal result. As our spiritual life progresses on earth, our eternal mansion progresses. Jesus fits us for our future abode and prepares our future above for us. Let not your heart be troubled. Infinite wisdom and love is preparing an inheritance for you and preparing you for an inheritance. But let heart awake. Let us be faithful unto death that we may obtain the crown of life. We are with Jesus. He is all, the beginning and ending, and with him all our hopes are crowned. You're not going to miss out. With him, all our hopes are crowned. We rejoice in the hope of glory. What's your hope and rejoicing on earth? You know, you can direct it toward heaven. There's a way to do that. Jesus told us that where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do I stir up my heart? for Easy. Take your treasure and place it in heaven. If you place it in earthly things then your heart will be directed toward earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Begin to invest in eternal things. Give more of your treasure, your heart, your life, your time, your thought, your passion, who you are. Give more to eternal things, to the hope of glory, and your heart will be directed there. Again, this isn't cheap. It's secured for us in the work of Jesus Christ. It is meaningful. And we are each supposed to have our own experience of God. In my everyday life, you're preparing an eternal glory for me. And it's secured in you. Now, in verse 3, this may seem like a strange twist here. Because he says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. You wouldn't think that this would be the move now that he makes for us. But Paul understands that as he talks about these amazing things, having peace with God, access to God's grace, and the hope of glory does not mean every Christian's life is going to be perfect. It doesn't mean now that we're without tribulation or that... We can't have both of these things in the same life. In fact, the work of God will always bring us into direct conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. When God is doing something real, the enemy is going to try to work against those things. And he knew that these early believers were going to face things that were going to be difficult in life. Just as you and I are going to have trials and sufferings, and that was a normal part of their Christian experience. They understood that this was what was going to happen. It was a part of the early Christian message, Acts 14, 22. Paul will say, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Again, he would write to the Thessalonians, he'd only been there for a short while, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that, you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. All these early Christians, we forget. The person they followed was Jesus, who faced difficulty and was unjustly murdered on a cross. Then they followed the apostles, who were all martyrs. And Paul, who was a martyr. All, all of these early examples faced hardship in their pursuit of God, but still had peace and access and the hope of glory. And those things were greater than the difficulties and trials they faced. And this is why it's important that we have these things in our normal lives, because most of us are not facing anything like martyrdom. And, and the peace of God is not even strong enough to help us keep our attitude when we're like behind in school in the morning and trying to make a lunch. Right? or talk with our spouse, or just deal with somebody who's annoying us at work. Right? These things need to be a little bit bigger for us here. Uh, you know, we, we could begin to question, ah, these things, how, how, does, how do some of these people in the world handle, and they have, most of us are not even in those scenarios. This, this needs to be real for us 
on our individual level, and certainly it has been proven true and real in the most difficult things, and we're going to face trials and tribulations, and Paul knew that, but he said we can even glory in those things because they are something that will produce in us. Notice what he says. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. The, the tribulations we face, they produce something positive. And I, I think that we can, we can sometimes get caught up in this unspoken agreement between us and God that, you know, because it looks like other people are living lives and they don't really have tribulations. Of course, we don't know that. We just assume that. Seemed like they got to live their life and everything kind of went the way they wanted. And then when something doesn't go the way we wanted, there's a tribulation or trial or difficulty. We're kind of shocked because we thought, Lord, I thought we kind of had this agreement. I would do this for you and you would kind of do this for me. Job says, shall we receive good from the hand of God and not affliction or trial or difficulty? We're, we're, we're ready to accept all the good things he has for us day by day by day by day. But the minute a trial or difficulty comes along, and most of them are not unto blood or death, we're like, come on, God. What happened with that agreement? Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Your, your adversary, he's ro roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same things, the same trials, afflictions, difficulties are happening to your brethren all around the world. We, the whole world, all Christians all over the world are being tested by the enemy, and we, we want to be the one who escapes. I agree. Right? But that's, that's our tendency. Right? And I, I've come to places in my own life where I have to realize something. All right, Lord, I'm going to go to heaven, and Christians all over the world are going to have faced affliction. And what, what am I going to do? Am I, am I going to have tried to escape my fair share the whole time? For you, when you're trying to produce something in us, again, we don't seek, or, we don't seek tribulations. We receive them when they come. God is the one who brings them along, and he has called us to it. I can't tell you why you face your tribulations. That's often the question. I don't know why the tribulations that I face are the ones that were given to me or why others are not. That's the thing that I can't ever answer. But I know that tribulation produces something that's good in God's sight, perseverance, and perseverance, character, and that character, hope, that there's something that is being done in us. And it's not, my submitting to that is not the, not the, you know, chin up and just take one for the team, the grit to kind of get through it. My Submission here is, I trust God's glory and plans are involved. The difference as a Christian is, I believe my sufferings and afflictions and trials mean something. And bring me into something in the objective promises that he's given me. The person in the world, they don't escape trials and difficulties. But their trials and difficulties mean nothing. They don't produce the character of God. They don't bring them future glory. They aren't a part of God's ultimate plan, working purposes for good, in the sense for them personally. They, they have no hope. If I'm an atheist and God's not in the world and I have cancer, it's just, it all means nothing. But as a believer, I say, God, you're working something in me. These trials, they have a purpose in my life. You're, you're producing a perseverance, an endurance in my life that you know I'm going to need to walk in you. A character, that's, the idea is something that's gone through the fire. A character that when it comes out the other side, it is truly mine. 
something that I own. He makes us into something as the potter, vessels fit for the master's good use. And, and in that then, hope, a true hope. Most of the time, we can't get past the little things in our life without some trial or difficulty anyway. We all kind of have our pacifiers. You know what the pacifier is, right? You give it to the baby, the nook, the binky, whatever you want to call it. And you, you, it's always a battle to get them away from the child at some point, for the most part. And we all have our pacifiers in this life. Right? We're sucking on our material goods a little too hard. Or our friends. Or our control. And you know what? God's just like, I'm going to just knock that out right there. <laughs> little affliction in our life, little trial difficulties. So we begin to see the world the way things actually are. It brings us back to the real perspective of things. He knows we need to mature in places. And it begins to develop something in us, something that he wants then to come out, that he's going to use in the world. Fenelon said, don't waste your suffering. Let suffering accomplish what God wants it to in your life. Never get so hard that you suffer for no reason and no purpose. Paul said, God loves a cheerful giver. I love this. How much he must love those who cheerfully give themselves to his dealings. How much he must love that. Uh, I believe it was Hudson Taylor who had a bunch of missionaries in front of him and pounded on a desk with a cup of water and it began to splash out. And he said, your ministry's gonna strike you, difficulties and trials and hardships. But he said, what's gonna come out is only what's in you. God's trying to work glory in so that glory shakes out. He knows what we need and the wonderful thing is he doesn't leave us on our own. Look at verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint, doesn't make ashamed, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God knows we need help to love him and to love others. He gives us his spirit of love, the love of the spirit. Paul's talked about it in Romans 15. I can't even love him without his help. But with divine life comes divine love. That's why it becomes the mark of the Christian. This is how men will know you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Because it's something supernatural in us. He sheds his love abroad in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And I don't fear then. I don't believe that my hope, my life, my perseverance, the character of this being formed. It's not wasted. I, I'm not going to be ashamed in the end. Paul would say in 9.33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul would say in 10.11, the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We love him and we trust that we will not be put to shame in the end no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our scenarios, no matter what our trials. He has made these objective realities that we can live in. Peace, access, grace, that we can have glory. And we should be growing in our personal experience of all those things, and he wants us to. And they should be powerful enough that even when we come through the difficulties and hardships that he works in us, because we live in a fallen world, we ourselves are still fallen, that we hope in him and we know our hope is never going to be put to shame. And he helps us because he knows we need it. He gives us his Holy Spirit and sheds his love abroad in our hearts so that we can love him and we can love the people around us. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're willing to pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts. You know, Lord, that we need these things. Pray you would pour out your Spirit on us like we're dry ground. And Lord, I just pray for anybody particularly here tonight.
that needs you, that needs that help, that perspective, that work of your spirit, the supernatural life in you. We pray, Lord, for that brother or sister, that you would fill them up, that you would do your work gracefully in their hearts and in their lives. And I pray, Lord, for myself and the rest of everybody here that you would allow us to step into the greater and greater reality of the things that you have purchased for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, those things, those heavenly blessings would be ones that we richly enjoy, both here and later in their fullness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.